Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Dr. Joel Dudley is an Associate Professor of Genetics and Genomic Sciences and Founding Director of the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. His work is focused at the nexus of genomics, digital health, artificial intelligence, scientific wellness, and healthcare delivery. In 2014, he was named one of the 100 most creative people in business by Fast Company. Along with Joel is Dr. Chris Mason, an associate professor of physiology and biophysics at Weill Cornell Medicine, where he's also director of the World Quant Initiative for Quantitative Prediction and Precision Metagenomics. He was named a Brilliant 10 Scientist by Popular Science, called the Genius of Genetics by the 92nd Street Y, and featured as a TED Med and World Mind speaker. Joel and Chris, along with Paul Jacobson, the CEO of Thorne, joined forces as the co-founders of Longevity. Longevity is an AI-based, personalized health service that evolves with new scientific discoveries and medical breakthroughs. Longevity provides a comprehensive molecular portrait and customized recommendations for an individual's health based on an integrated analysis of longitudinal blood, genetics, and microbiome profiles. Suffice to say, guys, they are truly on the cutting edge in wellness. Joel, Chris, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for being here. So with regards to testing, I would say the major ones that come to mind, we've got genetics, you know, slash DNA, microbiome, and then your traditional labs and blood work. What would you say are the limitations of these forms of testing? And at the same time, like what what's exciting? Well, I think what's exciting is putting them all together. So, you know, a lot of people get excited about genetics, which makes sense because if there's anything that's unique about you, or at least defines what's unique about you, it's your DNA, right? You know, it's your, your genome. But you have to remember that it's just sheet music. You know, it doesn't tell you how the song's being played inside your body. So you have to pair that with uh, blood testing, with microbiome. There's a huge limitation to what you can actually infer about what's actually happening in your body just from the DNA profile alone. So without that dynamic data that comes from blood, from microbiome, the DNA is very limited in what it can tell you. So you need all three. You need all, you need, yeah, the more the better. Yeah, the more dimensions, more. the better. Yeah, I mean, actually, we've seen, like, identical twins, for example. Of course, they look uh, very much identical, but over time, they slowly drift uh, more uh, basically distinct genetically with our, what are called just somatic mutations. We all accumulate mutations over time, but also epigenetically, they drift, and their microbiome drifts, and, of course, their biochemistry is distinct. And so, uh, you know, identical twins uh, look strikingly similar, but under the hood, they're dramatically different and can have completely different responses to eating the same food and even living the same life. So you have to measure uh, the totality of biology to really be able to act on it. So of those three, which are a little more uh, ahead of the other? 
So people will talk about who come on this this podcast. We'll talk about microbiome and say it's, it's new and exciting, but you know there's still there's so much happening. Whereas bloods are bloods, with the exception of maybe Theranos. We'll talk about that. <laughs> like, how would you rank? Like, what what's there really not going to change, and what is new and exciting but will continue to evolve? Well, on blood testing, we have a huge evidence base, obviously, from clinical medicine in which we can draw for decades, uh, disease yeah. associations. Um, what are the, although I will argue that we still need to redefine normal ranges. You know, the way, if you actually go back to the literature and look at how these quote-unquote, you know, normal healthy ranges were determined, it's pretty yeah, archaic in some cases. You know, it's a, it's a handful of studies from the 1950s or from the NHANE study or something. So I think there are still a lot of unanswered questions in blood testing, but in terms of near-term utility, blood testing is clear. Um, genetics is easy to measure, and we kind of know what's normal from the population. But again, the how you use that to infer disease risk is still evolving. Right, and a lot of the everyone has a different ancestry. We all look at different high eye hair and skin color. We're all coming from different genetic ancestries, and you can see that and uh, how people look. That also manifests in their molecular biology. So. The genetic background that you have also, to some degree, defines how you respond to, to drugs, to your environment, to microbiome. What's often called pharmacogenetics is just how, how your body responds to drugs. De- depends a bit on your ancestry, and that that we have also just begun to measure. Uh, but the measurement is pretty robust. We can now sequence DNA very accurately, very distinctly for whole human genomes. So, what do doctors typically test for versus what should they test for? Well, you know, I think. There's a, a big, uh, you know, evidence-based medicine uh, that the, in, in many diseases that they can draw from. So um, heart disease is one where there's been large, large-scale studies, you know, published um, from which they can, they can draw. So, you know, it, you can't answer that question without talking about the specific disease or, or the health condition. Sure, we'll start with heart. Start with heart disease. Heart, heart disease, yeah, it's a great one where there's pretty well, there's large-scale studies. But I, I think in terms of what they should be testing for is more of a, moving from the sort of population-based inferences that we get from large-scale studies to N of 1. So N of 1 meaning a clinical trial on a single individual. In that case, you know, you would want to be able to assess your individualized response because physicians are practicing the best evidence on, you know, on average for a population. But you personally could deviate from that or be unique. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense for physicians, you know, operating uh, economically and just based on, you know, statistics to, to do what's best for the population on average. But we really want to empower individuals to start, uh, or even physicians, to doing N of 1 trials, experimenting on a single patient to see what works and what doesn't. So cardiovascular, good example. I think 20 years ago, people would say, like, cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Now, you you know, a lot of people who've been on the show we talked to will say, okay, LPA, fasting insulin, uh, CT scan, mm-hmm. like I'm curious, like with regards to to cardio, cardiovascular, like what are the things in your opinion people should test for? Well, there's, um, you know, again, there, I should also point out that there's a economic reason why we don't test for some of these extra things, right? So again, if you're <laughs> no, if you're if you're a you know an insurance company or whatever, you're gonna pick the the one thing that gives you the most bang for your buck, you know, economically for predicting on a population level. But um, there are things like calcium scoring of mm-hmm. the of the aorta. Um, there's actually the intermedial thickness of the carotid artery, which you can actually get through um, ultrasound of the in in the neck. So these things actually have been shown to be great predictors uh, of heart. Why aren't they done on a on a everyday basis? It's, again, it gets down to insurance and economics, but they're also not that expensive. 
But there's some new things uh, actually in heart health that came from an unexpected place. One is something called clonal hematopoiesis, which if you think of the root of the word, it just means the genesis of blood, which is in your bone marrow. And so an interesting sort of result just in the past two years has been that you know, we all carry mutations as we age, as I said in the beginning. But what's interesting is they accumulate in your blood uh, at a different rates in different people. And some of them actually can increase your risk of a heart attack by five or tenfold because you get mutations and essentially in your bone marrow that then propagate into white blood cells that end up building up into some plaques in your arteries. And so a small, you know, tiny and quiet mutation hiding in your bone marrow can actually lead to increased risk of heart attack. How do you test? What's the test for that? So you have to do just really deep DNA sequencing on targeted genes that carry these mutations. Uh, and to, to look for what's called that uh, chip or clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential is the term. So, but basically it means the hematopoiesis is how you generate your blood, but it becomes clonal. So one small cell gets mutated and actually starts to out, outgrow and outpopulate the other uh, bone marrow cells. And that, that has been a uh, really big t twist just in the past two years of looking at DNA sequencing, particularly carrying these subtle mutations in your blood that then lead to increased risk of, of cancer, but also for uh, heart attacks and heart disease. Yeah, I would just build on that in saying that one of the biggest gaps I think we have in the current testing paradigm is assessing the health of the immune system, which what mm -hmm. Chris just talked about would fall under. Mm -hmm. So what's becoming clear from, you know, very rigorous large-scale studies is that the immune system ends up, so all roads kind of go back to the yeah. immune, to inflammation and immunity. Um, in space, too. Everything from Alzheimer's disease to diabetes to heart disease. Uh, to cancer, there's an inf potential, you know, immune, or there is definitely an immune component. So, but we we lack the tools right now to get a good assessment of your what is your immune health. We actually have pretty barbaric testing tools in terms of determining immune health right now. So we need to improve those. So, what are the major gaps? It seems like there's an explosion of information, yeah. you know, between you know, I'll go back to the big three: genetics, microbiome, bloods. Um, there's so much, you know, if I'm at home, it's like various tools out there, whether it's 23andMe, Thorne, Longevity, what you guys are doing, go on and on, like yeah. so much out there. What are the, the limits currently? And like, how is that going to change? I think some of it will change that it will be a lot more uh, democratization and empowerment of people getting these measures on their own and, and basically embedding that into their own sort of quantified self metrics. But, but it will, I think, revolve. I mean, we've built uh, longevity to be revolving around those three very dynamic states, but also most informative states. So blood and microbiome are very dynamic, very you know, modulatable, and also um, really approachable if you want to try and uh, you know, move the needle. Whereas genetics is fairly you know, stable for the most part, but also some things do change over time. Like I mentioned, clonal hematopoiesis increases as you age. Uh, some things also change. Most people know like your telomeres get shorter as you sure. age. There are some things that are core to just the structure of your DNA but they're adaptable. They actually change, and they can inform how you uh, view your health. In your opinion, what's the best thing you do to lengthen telomeres? Uh, oh, like, what's the best way to measure it, do you mean? Lengthen. How do you lengthen, oh, lengthen telomeres? Uh, so actually, it turns out the best way to lengthen them so far is to, and go, measure. to go to space. Uh, so we have a study coming out in a couple of weeks uh, that actually, <laughs> if you go out uh, and live in the space station for a year, it's one of the few ways we've seen the telomeres get longer. So. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. so actually, it's, it's uh, coming out like in uh, about two weeks. You'll see it, uh, basically, we looked at identical twins, one that was in space for a year and one that was on Earth, uh, Mark and Scott Kelly. And so it's it's really strange. We didn't believe it at first because that this just can't be right. So we sent additional uh, DNA extracts from our lab to Susan Bailey's lab. She sent them back to us. We confirmed it with different primers. We did different sample extractions. It definitely got longer in space. But interestingly, in the immune system, the T cells telomeres got longer. 
but not so much in the B cells. They did slightly, but not as significantly. So like everything in biology, it's very cell type specific and also context specific. And that's an important caveat, especially when we start looking at things like telomere testing or even epigenetic uh, testing on of, of aging is it's not clear that, the, that one aging marker is going to, you know, be, be useful or most predictive, right? It's actually, it seems clear to me, at least that your different parts of your body age at different rates. So, you know, you're going to need multiple markers to assess what is your gut health? What is your blood health? What is your brain health? You know, the, this is the challenge. Cardiovascular health. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, so. And then, and then the question I always think is, in my mind, well, when is it just too much information? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's what I was going to comment on, on the gap is which we're really missing is the system that, you know, pulls together. everything together. So on the clinical medicine side, mainstream clinical medicine side, we, we, we are totally siloed, right? So we, we really have specialists that take a symptoms and anatomy view of your body, right? So if something's wrong with your skin, you see someone who, who treats skin. If something's wrong with your gut, you see someone who treats your gut. But by the way, your skin and your gut are totally connected. Mm-hmm. At the molecular level, lots of shared mm-hmm. uh, DNA markers, uh, drugs that treat similar diseases. The uh, immune system interaction. Yeah. Both, yeah. But um, so they, they're already siloed. And on the consumer side, I think we have uh, a lot of direct-to-consumer testing companies, but I've been calling them uh, recreational health information companies. They sort of tell you, you know, they give you some health information, and it seems it's, it's fun to learn about it, but they don't provide you a solution, you know, like medicine does when they find a problem. So, you know, t- shamelessly, this is why we've, we've built 20, uh, longevity is to, you know, go beyond just giving information to offering solutions. So we talked about a little bit what we touched on, microbiome, mm-hmm. which I'll segue to to the skin and the and, and your environment and germs and Chris you did something pretty interesting with <laughs> the New York City subway and I'll let you explain what you did yeah so I had a, a deep curiosity in general about microbiome space I, I mean I'm a geneticist by training more human geneticist and we'd been sequencing human genomes at, uh, for a while for almost 10 years and we always would see fragments of DNA that didn't match to the human genome when you'd sequence any skin sample and even even blood sample and some of it's because uh, uh, the mapping is incomplete, the genome's incomplete, but there are microbes in us, on us, and all around us all the time. So some of them would always, we'd start to look at them, and then, so that was part of my curiosity. And then also, when I, as I became a father, I think as everyone does, you have your children, they're basically like miniature sponges roaming the environment, licking things, grabbing things, putting everything in their mouth. And I watched my daughter when she was very young, you know, really just do a complete face sort of tongue wrap around the subway pole uh, when we were just riding on the C train. And I, and I had this moment of complete parental horror where I thought this is something has just happened here. She licked the subway pole. There's clearly been a microbiome exchange that had just occurred. And I really was just out of pure curiosity. I was like, well, I'm a geneticist. We should be able to do a genetic catalog of what had just been exchanged between her mouth and this surface touched by millions of people every day. But, you know, I go home and there was, there's no data. There was no paper on what was present on surfaces done, you know, used by across the world, hundreds of millions of people every week. And uh, there'd been two studies about what's in the air, one in Hong Kong, one in New York, all using an older technology called 16S sequencing, which only gives you really a very high overview. It's kind of like taking a picture of a rainforest from, from you know, a satellite and saying, oh, I think I know some of the species there. There'd been very little data and, and not much done with what's called shotgun sequencing, which is where you take, you fragment all the DNA and you sequence it and you map it. So I really just became curious. So we uh, set out in 2013 to say, well, 
I don't just want to look at one subway station. If we're going to do a map of a city, we should do it comprehensively. So we did all 468 stations in triplicate and built a genetic map of the city and published it back in 2015, really to, to catalog what's there. It was, I must confess, almost purely out of curiosity just to see what was there. And so we found, uh, you know, essentially uh, ten, over you know, 5,000 species all over the subway, plant, animal, microbial, viruses uh, everywhere. My favorite statistic is that actually about half the DNA match no known organism. So, uh, if you look at what's any, living in it's, the subway, it's a mystery, mystery. So, if you look at a subway pool, you should be wrapped with uh, amazement and excitement at the capacity for discovery on that steel railing. But this is true of, of human microbiome yes. as well. So, like the more human microbiome, we see, you know, we're still discovering novel species. So, mm -hmm. we don't have the whole microbiome mapped out yet yeah, within us or around us. Yeah. So how did this, I have so many questions, how did this change the course of your research and how did this change your relationship and view on germs in general and kids licking things? And right, right. Um, you know, for a little while I thought, uh, well, so it really gave me an impressive uh, appreciation of the immune system because if you think of, we're constantly surrounded by and really embedded with microbes. And, and, you know, we're not all dying. We found, you know, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, multidrug-resistant bacteria living on actually every single surface of the subway we tested has living and, and vibrant bacteria. And, and th some of them sound like they could be scary, but actually, in reality, you know, it's not like people rampantly just falling down in the subway from some strange infection. Actually, for the most part, everyone's fine. So it really represents to a large degree that the immune system, when in good order, is really uh, keeping your body at homeostasis and that there is also this extraordinary diversity. And I became more of an optimist that something, uh, if something does happen to touch a, a railing or a surface, it still depends on what's there. You could still have something that could be bad there, but writ large, statistically, most of it was harmless. So we have a two-year-old, yeah, and yeah, yeah. she and we travel a lot. So, like, you know, oh wait, we're flying, and there she is on the floor. <laughs> there she is, putting her hand in her mouth. Like, how has it changed your view on kids and germs? It, it, yeah, it definitely made me more of an optimist, and it's also linked to something called the hygiene hypothesis, which is an active area of research in my lab and many others. Is that it's, it's been very clear from epidemiological studies that, especially when you're a child, you need the exposure to the dirt, to the to germs. Actually, uh, uh, Jack Gilbert had a great book on this. It was just called, you know, uh, Germs Are Good. Um, you know, this idea that uh, uh, Marty Blazer has a great book called The Missing Microbes. This idea that there are many, many microbes that you not just you know, want to have but need to have for the development of your immune system. And so I think if you live in a too sterile of an environment, it's actually the thing you don't want to do. Now, it doesn't mean you want to just roll every baby on the floor like a, like a sushi roll. I mean, uh, it wouldn't necessarily be bad, but, you, but you, you know, playing, just even some things playing outside, uh, getting exposure to as many things as you can that aren't pathogens is generally a good thing. So is the three-second rule, is, is it extended or is it shortened? Um uh, it it mean, it's it's probably I mean it's sensitive to food is moist because then it, you don't you're going to pick up a lot more you know than just the microbes there but uh, we we generally uh, are less alarmed about the the three second rule okay. it's like oh well it could have been one it could have been five seconds as soon as it touches there's probably something transferred so it's uh, it's really the omnisecond rule I'd say okay and that is probably going to be okay fair enough yeah. fair enough so something that uh, people are I didn't say fearful but cautious about is antibiotics and what it does to the microbiome. What, what's your view there? Yeah, well, you know, the first thing to say in this case is that- Subway's okay? Yeah. Antibiotics? <laughs> well, antibiotics are great because, you know, they save us from all kinds of really terrible things. It's so important. It's yes. important to have them. So yes. yep. I'd like to point that out first. Whenever yes. I talk about antibiotics, they've been a, a great tool. Um, and, you know, physicians- you know, if you go to urgent care or something like that, you'll see posters now over the place. You know, please don't ask for antibiotics. Mm -hmm. if, if it's a viral infection, because they're not going to do anything. Work, yeah, yeah. But 
it's clear also that you know antibiotic use is having um, temporary or if not long-term effects depending on how often you have it uh, on the gut microbiome it can totally shift the landscape of your microbiome so sort of mm. Think of it in some ways. Your, your microbiome is really an ecosystem that you're trying to balance. And so, think of it maybe like a topographic map where there's optimal states and, and suboptimal states. So, taking antibiotics can sort of push you around on this map, and it might get you stuck in this sort of a, a suboptimal sort of valley in this yes. this space that you want to sort of optimize your your, your microbiome. So, so now we can measure how you know dysfunctional it might be or abnormal it might be from antibiotics. The challenge is how do you build it back up or how right. do you get back to that optimal state and that is uh, you know what we're, what we're working on but it's a harder thing uh, to figure out yeah and, and it is i mean so antibiotics are you know they're everywhere you can even actually we've expanded the subway study now to 75 other cities and we can actually we compare who measures of antibiotic usage to what we see for the, the antibiotic genes that show up in the subway systems and they're very uh, closely correlated so actually you can almost measure the amount and the type of antibiotics that a population is taking by sequencing what's in their cities so this is kind of this molecular echo of what people are doing and taking everywhere they go because, you know, some of it is in their hands. It's, it's you know, it seems to be shed almost by the people. And and this is, uh, you know, generally has been a bad thing. When people have a viral infection, as Joel was just saying, it, it won't help you at all to actually take antibiotics. And people take them uh, almost like candy. So it, it is, um, you know, there's something called stewardship that the WHO is really pursuing is that this idea that antibiotics are wonderful, they're essential for medicine, but you have to be careful stewards of when and how they get used. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just add, you know, the, the challenge here is your your microbiome. So when you take antibiotics, you're killing off certain species, and some species, depending on the particular antibiotic you're taking, are, may or be more or less susceptible to the effects of that antibiotic. But whenever you kill those off, there's a, it's like uh, if you abandon an apartment in uh, New York City, someone's going to be squatting in it <laughs> in no time, right? So it's... Uh, uh, so other bacterial species move in. So part of the challenge is, is when you're trying to rebuild that up, that back that up uh, bacteria up in the right way, is you have to then, you know, it's not like there's an open plot of land waiting to be reseeded. It's something sure. somebody else is, and it doesn't want to give up that spot yeah. that it fought hard to to move into. Just like Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so if you think about okay, uh, microbiome, you've got gut, you've got skin, and you've mm -hmm. got the larger environment. Mm -hmm. What should one do? Well, actually, one, one of the exciting things, we just finished a clinical trial and looking at what we could measure sort of on the platform to see what people have at baseline, and then we give a recommended intervention, either a prebiotic or a probiotic or some either vitamin or other supplement to basically see if we can shift the microbiome in the gut to a more healthy state, you know, as we're measured by a nine-point scale of gut health and see how people do before, during, and after this sort of intervention. And the really exciting thing is we can see, you know, for over 90% of the people who are in the, in the trial, they seem to really respond quite well, almost all of them improved. And we can also see that the ecosystem shifted. We just finished getting all the sequencing data back, and we can see what the, you know, the ecosystem looks like with, with shotgun sequencing, sort of looking across bacteria, viruses, really anything that's present in the gut. Fungi, we can see a shift that's moved towards a more healthy state. Uh, some of the more sort of uh, more positively associated gut microbes are present. So one good piece of good news is even if you've had gut issues or general, it could be skin microbiome in general, any microbiome state can be, you know, basically approached and even have an intervention that does shift it towards a more healthy state. So yes, we're all unique individuals. Uh, that That's clear. And personalization mm -hmm. is absolutely the future. But what would you say are the catch-alls? Like what are the things that are probably good for everyone to do with regards to their microbiome? So I think one thing we need to rethink uh, immediately is the use of probiotics. So based on some research that's coming out uh, from multiple groups and not just ours is 
Um, you know, th- there's no silver bullet, you know, probiotic that's going to rebuild the gut. And in fact, what it's looking like is the probiotics don't actually, you know, take up whole seed and colonize, or colonize mm-hmm. the gut. They're sort of transient. And, you know, when people go buy them, the, the advertisers sort of say, you know, based on the CFUs or whatever, the colony forming units, the, yeah. the more products that are, how many billions. Right. And that seems to be, um, you know, have no bearing on the actual, you know, health effects. And I think one thing that's important to point out is some of the most beneficial bacteria that have been associated with uh, better health outcomes for obesity, diabetes, even autoimmune disease. For example, um, there's a species called our genus, I guess, Ackermansia, that, um, you know, I don't expect anybody to remember that. But what Ackermansia do is they will eat the, um, uh, basically the mucus that comes, you know, from your, uh, your gut produced by your gut and other things in your gut and then it will produce metabolites or breakdowns of the things it's eating which then feed other bacteria so it's this sort of cascade of one bacteria feeding another set of bacteria but you cannot um, grow acromantia outside of the body so the only way you can increase your acromantia is by eating prebiotics right so so the the one takeaway that from the recent research is that prebiotics or like fibers and then selectively feeding the things that are already in your gut is probably a way better strategy than probiotics. So what are your favorite prebiotics? <laughs> well, well, prebiotics generally are... are People listening yeah. would be like, oh man, I took antibiotics, yeah, now I yeah. can't take a probiotic. Give me something. Okay. Well, I, need, I need to help well, me out here. Well, it's, you know, it's fibers. And then I think one rule of thumb would be like increasing... You know, not not all fibers have the same effect right. on your gut. Sure. They're, they're selective yeah. eating. But if you if you do broad spectrum fiber consumption, which would be it's easy, like have a salad with lots of different fruits and vegetables that gets you different fibers. I think what we're working towards is more precise, uh, you know, mixtures of fibers given your bacteria. And yeah, we've been testing. I mean, one really interesting part of the sort of collaboration is you know we built longevity to be the platform to measure all these things, but then uh, really actively testing each one of the sort of catalog products that are at Thorn to see okay, well. Which ones of them actually are working well based on your sort of your molecular profile? So trying to do a complete match between what's for set, what are what are things that people are already buying and taking for prebiotics, probiotics, and then seeing how well they work. So some of the ones we we already you know just looked at the clinical trial data to see, and so some you know and some people you know, like the Enteromend works really great. Other people Fibermend. There's different products that have different formulations, and we're you know I think just at the beginning of getting to and we can see differences already, and now we want to get to almost perfect customization as close as perfect as we can to what's in people's bodies. And I think, um, you know, so far, you know, those are some of our favorites, but, but we're going to be very, you know, data driven and really, I think, uh, fearless about it. If something doesn't work and we've tested on hundreds and then thousands of people and we see that something's not helping anybody, then we, you know, we're just, we should, we should, no one should sell it, right? It shouldn't right. be used. Or, I mean, it might work for someone somewhere down the line, but you know, we want things to be very uh, well matched and functional. I want to go back to food for a second because yeah. people tend to think like sauerkraut, yogurt, kombucha, leafy vet, like you're not. What are the ones that you're, you're like, okay, there's some science there, maybe not science, maybe you're rolling the dice. I'm just curious with regards I, to food. I, I think the standard American diet is so bad on average <laughs> that yeah. as a general rule of thumb, those are good you know, to, to, to consume because you probably have such a lack of fibers and other things that getting some uh, you know, exogenous uh, bacteria from the outside and, and microbes is, is beneficial. But I, I think they're also, depending on the in- individual, doing lots of harm. If you have um, dysregulation of your um, epithelial uh, layers in your gut where you're potentially having certain bacterial species overgrowing or you're having bacterial species reflux from your large bowel into your small bowel and potentially grow where they shouldn't be growing, throwing more yeast and uh, uh, bacteria into the mix may be the, the, the worst possible thing. How do you know if thing. that's happening? 
That's a harder one to test for, but okay. uh, call yeah, it Chris. There are some, uh, you know, you can actually take small devices that will match sample as they go through your gut um, and, and collect uh, basically microbial sort of sampling throughout your GI tract, but those are more special cases. Yeah, I think more um, uh, rapid testing following. So again, it, it's going to be getting down to how do we allow people in a more rigorous and scientific way test how their bodies are acting. So I think pairing you know, food intervention with immediate readout of, for example, blood biomarkers would tell us sure. if you're having an immune reaction against certain species or not. What about for like the average? So a lot of people will say that, you know, there, there are not a lot of people. There, there have been doctors that have been on this program will say like millions of people have leaky gut and leaky gut is the, the root of a lot of bad stuff that you don't want. In your opinion, is it leaky gut? Are there other things that you're discovering that are the, the, the root of evil? Whether it's, you know, at the highest level, people say inflammation is just terrible. You don't want it. But then yeah. how do you, you know, lots of ways to measure that or leaky gut. Like in your opinion, what are the things that are, that science says, like, these are the things actually you do need to watch out for? Uh, I mean, so there's, you know, if you look at IBD versus IBS or inflammatory bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease, even there, the, the criteria for IBS are, are pretty broad. So, you know, there's some jokes uh, in GI doctors that'll say, well, you know, if, you, if, I, if I go to, you know, if I have two bad nights of Mexican food, then I could be, I could have IBS. You know, because some of the criteria just involve having enough bad instances in the, over the course of at least, you know, several weeks. Uh, so, you know, some people think IBS cat categorization is too broad, but but fundamentally, I mean, it has to be data-driven and talk to people. So if someone really is having a hard time and having persistent diarrhea and really unhappy, then something's, uh, something's been perturbed. And so uh, whether it's, I mean, sometimes leaky gut and IBS overlap and, and it's hard to disentangle them. Some people, I mean, I'm sure there are, you know, well, there's estimates that there's 60 million people affected by some gut disorder, whether it's leaky gut, IBS, IBD, some sort of uh, gastrointestinal uh, dysbiosis. So it, it's, um, you know, I think there's probably going to be some phenotypic overlap, or there definitely is. And uh, the, the big thing, I think, instead of describing it more phenomenologically, I think much like we're, this has already happened in cancer genetics, we don't just think about any cancer anymore about like, well, where did it come from in the body? Because it doesn't matter as much as it does about the genetic and molecular profile of that cancer. So for example, you can have a, a cancer in your lung, or it could be coming from, it could be leukemia, it could be a glioblastoma. And what you target, though, is not necessarily where it came from in the body, but what mutations it has. And I think it'll be the same thing with the gut disorders. You don't even necessarily matter how much the, the overlap is between IBS or leaky gut. You want to profile what's there, both in the blood and the microbiome, and then target it. So, I mean, I think the estimates are in the tens of millions of people affected, but I think eventually we'll substratify those people, and we already can see it in our own clinical trials that you can really clearly see different groups of people based on their ecosystem wow. and then target it yeah. appropriately. As we, I mean, everyone, cancer patient that walks to the door, uh, you know, at the hospital where I work is, you know, they, we don't we don't look at necessarily uh, just what where it came from, but we look at the molecular and genetic profile and, uh, you know, act accordingly. And I, I would add that in human physiology, unfortunately, because it makes things way more complex, is it, it's all context-dependent, even down potentially to the time of day. But you know, we, a lot of people think inflammation is bad, and chronic inflammation is bad for you. But remember, um, when you go to the gym and exercise, and when you break down your muscles, it's actually inflammation that's rebuilding your muscles, actually. And if you take anti-inflammatories, you'll hurt your, your athletic performance. Actually, bodybuilders will avoid anti-inflammatories after they work out. So same with cortisol, right? We say cortisol is bad for you because it causes stress. But if you don't have that delta from low cortisol at night to high cortisol in the morning that regulates, you know, as part of your 24-hour cycle, then that actually is bad for you. You need the, the changes in, in cortisol. So when we talk about human health, unfortunately, the, the context matters. 
Interesting. So what are the things I'm curious, like personally that you've changed in your own day to day and where you've learned something from research? So like whether it's I'm intermittent fasting now, or I'm a believer in keto, like are there any lifestyle things or day to day that you've incorporated? This is the do as I say, not as I do part of the, no, of the discussion. A bit, I mean, some yeah. of it is some things I had done that I was doing before. So whenever I can, you know, I just yesterday went for a run for four miles. I run, you know, go work out whenever I can uh, because, you know, basically and eat as much salad as I can. Like no matter what, I mean, that's one of the most satisfying things about most, most profiles you get from direct-to-consumer testing. I'm like, okay, I got this profile. I'm at risk for some diseases, not as much for others. I should probably go exercise and probably eat more salad. And like that is... So greens are still good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unquestionably. Yeah, unquestionably. Uh, but also, you know, I've taken some of the... So during Actually, during the clinical trial, we had some controls. And just to jump into the study, I was also ordering some of the same products and trying uh, things like uh, Fibermen just to see, you know, how it would... You know, it would actually made me small things. You know, it's a it's a podcast, but I can describe it verbally. Just you know, more regular, which is actually, uh, you know, you don't have to eat a whole wicker furniture set to be, get enough fiber in your diet. There's other ways to get it. You know, so uh, I think uh, some small things like that have been uh, just a nice bonus. Yeah, I mean, I have done the ketogenic diet and um, intermittent fasting. I have Crohn's disease, which is a you know a immune disease of the intestines, and that has personally helped me quite a bit. And I think there's not much magic to it. It's actually about um, one, it you know modulates your microbiome from the, the ketogenic standpoint, but two, um, from the intermittent fasting standpoint, it's it's uh, giving bowel rest, right? It's basically I'm just resting. If you're eating all the time, your body never has chance to rebuild itself. So a lot of people will even slam food down before they go to bed. But there's a process in your body called autophagy, which is you know basically the you know sort of taking out the garbage, rebuilding, doing maintenance, right? And you do. You know, it's a complex process, uh, autophagy, but if you're never giving your guts time to rest and rebuild and always, you know, even a little bit of food totally changes, you know, the physiology. So you got to give it time to, to rest and, and, and rebuild via sure. autophagy. So moving over to longevity, what are the things that break down oh, as we time. start to age? Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, I have. Um, I give this talk to actually to, to first year medical students to describe. It's actually my opening lectures. I think, okay, what do, what do we know about the human body? How can we think about it actually for going to space or going to Mars? I'll talk about it because we all can't go to space <laughs> and reverse <laughs> our telomeres. Not all you need is fifty five million dollars to get a ticket yeah. on the Soyuz. Well, this just got a lot more expensive. It's already <laughs> expensive enough. Um, so there, you know. The things that it's a good thing to think about how do we, uh, you know, look at longevity and, and preserve it by looking at what normally sort of just, just decomposes over time, if you will, or really this uh, molecular march towards sort of uh, sort of dysregulation. And this includes things that most of us already know. So we all, you know, get gray hair, we all get wrinkles, you know, collagen changes in our body. There's some visible things. But I think the more interesting layers are at the biological level. One I mentioned at the beginning is clonal hematopoiesis, is that we just all accumulate mutations everywhere in our body. You can look at moles on the skin, but all, it's the same idea. Idea that we all accumulate mutations in our bone marrow, telomeres shrink as you get older. Actually, your gut age has a sort of drift that happens epigenetically. So look at how DNA is packaged and regulated. It's called epigenetics. Uh, the, we see methylation change in DNA over time. It very it tightly correlates with your age as well. And so all these these are things that we know drift. And so to some degree, they are good markers to see if any intervention is changing your age. But we don't yet know if they, if by changing them alone that will make you live longer. But at least we have a good number of measures now of, of what your longevity is looking like. Yeah, a lot of what makes life robust is its ability to respond to the environment and to challenge. And one thing you see as your body ages is it loses that plasticity or that ability to respond to challenge. So for, so for example, 
um, your heartbeat is actually regulated by lots of competing overlapping signals. And one thing you'll notice, you know, un unfortunately, when someone's in the last stages of their life is that their heart becomes like a metronome, just like dunk, dunk, and it can't respond, you know, to these complex challenges. So how do you, there's a concept in biology called hormesis, which is basically, you know, allowing your body to adapt to, to small stresses so that it's overall resilient. So this is... Um, behind potentially like high intensity interval training is good for you. Why even uh, cold exposure and heat exposure. Um, Everyone loves cryo. Yeah, yeah cryo, these cream. things. But, th but the biology behind it and even behind um, some of these compounds that have been shown to potentially improve uh, you know, life extension is that you know, it's a little bit of, of poison, I guess, uh, increases, upregulates resilient factors in, in acute you know, situations. You don't want these things chronically. But always um, improving your, or maintaining your body's ability to respond dynamically to the environment is important. So I think, though we don't have yet a lot of the good biomarkers or tests that show us how do you respond, how's your body, what's the plasticity of your body right now, and how's it, what's its ability to respond to the environmental challenges? So you mentioned stress. Mm -hmm. Stress, good, bad, neutral, all dependent on level of stress. What type of stress? Yeah, context dependent of, as everything is in biology and, and time dependent. But you know, overall, you shouldn't be stressed all the time. And there's many studies that show that uh, persistent spikes in cortisol that there you know is not going to be good. So you, uh, stress, uh, but but you know, stress has a function. Yeah, there's a book, uh, Upside of Stress. Yeah, I think Kelly it's called Kelly McConnell yeah. and uh, another and, Stanford. Yeah, PhD. yeah, exactly. And uh, her her uh, husband actually used to work in my research team. But the, it's a small world. But the uh, um, what was interesting, if I recall correctly from that book, too, is your perception of stress actually modulated its effects uh, physiologically, right? So if if you uh, determine, like, unfortunately, Chris and I are of the mind that stress is a, is a great, it's a useful <laughs> tool, and we often put ourselves in situations of very high stress because we kind of feed off of get it. get more things done. Uh, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, so for, for people around us and in our lives and personal lives, but uh um, so there's that sort of mental resilience factor as well and how, how stress affects you. So we've got the lifestyle piece and we've got the genetics piece with regards to longevity. Like, how do you look at that mix? You know, how much is genetics? How much is lifestyle? What can we alter? What can't we alter and getting an epigenetics and... Right, right. Um, I mean, so, uh, and it, well, actually, I would, I would put a, a little bit of a bold proposal out and say, uh, at this point, everything is modulatable. It's just a question of how accessible it is. So genetics, historically, has not been, you couldn't change your genetics, right? But as of last year, there's over a dozen different um, somatic CRISPR therapy trials where we're engineering uh, t tissues in the body or taking cells out of someone, like uh, chimeric antigen receptor therapy or T cells. You take cells out of someone's body, genetically engineer them, put them back in as a therapeutic. So even things that only a few years ago were, you know, almost science fiction, you know, you can to some degree now. I'm not, I'm not you know, advising everyone to start to modify their genome, but as a, as a question of technology, uh, genetics is now actually to some degree modulatable. But the things that are much easier to address are, of course, the microbiome. To some degree, your epigenetics uh, is it's by, by definition very you know, modifying and responding to the environment. And also just your general biochemistry, you can adjust with just lifestyle, what you eat, what you, what you drink, what, how much you exercise. And to say, was it, is it nature versus nurture? How much is environment or right. genetics? It, you know, it really, it, it depends on the disease. You know, if you have Huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis, it's a purely genetic component. But uh, things that look at like cardiovascular risk or, you know, even to some degree dementia, we take a lot of knowledge from twin studies. So these great uh, survey studies of all identical twins and looking at what is, what is nature versus nurture quite explicitly. 
You know, yeah, some things like uh, are on that list include things you wouldn't ex- expect, like boredom susceptibility. How much is my ability to be <laughs> bored genetic? And the answer is about 25, 30% is genetic potentially based on twin studies. <laughs> and so some things that you would think shouldn't be at all, you know, largely have to some degree at least a little bit of a genetic component. Whereas, you know, really severe Mendelian genetic diseases are almost 100% genetic. And so most of the things we've talked about, I think probably what people listening might be curious about, you know, sort of, uh, you know, basically living longer, living, having a sharp mind, cardiovascular risk. Uh, those things are probably more environmental. Like you can actually affect a lot of your physiology with good exercise, good diet, uh, maintaining a healthy sort of ecosystem or microbiome. So, uh, but it is very dependent. So if, if you have severe mutations that give you cardiovascular risk, then that'll, that'll switch it over to more genetic. Yeah, and, and there's a challenge in using genetics in that sort of a tension between rare versus common variation. So we know that in certain families, nobody gets cancer or that they're all long-lived and all these sort of, sorts of things. But the challenge there is that it could be a set of very private mutations that if you think of all of humanity as a giant you know, family tree, there could be just one little branch of that family sure. tree that got these private mutations. So, but that means there's never going to be a reference database that says these genes are, you know, because there's not enough people to do a study on, right? So what are those commonalities? You know, a lot of, we talk about blue zones a lot here. Like what, what do you see in the patterns in terms of lifestyle, diet, you know, where they live, are they in cities, are they in nature? Like what, what are, what do you guys see? What does the science say of people who are, who are living longer, healthier lives and flourishing? Well, unfortunately for you and and me, because we're both tall, um, I think I'm six foot six. Maybe you're a little yeah, taller six, than me. Seven, you're yeah. six seven. Unfortunately, tall people don't seem to live that long. Well, is that, right? weight, is that yeah. weight or height, though? Yeah, yeah. It, that's a good question. But uh, you know, the, so but <laughs> but then there are also some people that have loss of function mutations in I, IGF and these growth factors. They end up being very short stature. Um, so there's potentially, and I'm not saying for sure, but potentially, you know, a relationship between you know these growth factors and and uh, longevity potentially. And the blue zone study has been interesting. A lot of the big best predictors of longevity will be, you know, just simple things like do you, do you walk uh, every right. day? Do you have a friends? Like, do you actually have a social interaction mm-hmm. circle? Also, it gives you you know better odds. And you know, and also the diet, of course, is a, bit, a pretty big factor. The Mediterranean diet's been well studied, uh, but you know, things that are very addressable, very approachable. Uh, you know, assuming you're a likable person, you should be able to get friends, you know, so these are things that are very addressable. Yeah, and I think some people will listen and say, oh, wow, this is just too much information, mm-hmm. just like, and, and what are the things that you can't measure? Is it faith? Is it purpose? Is it, you know, what are the things that are just the the, the secret sauce that you can't get a lab for? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm an empiricist, so it's hard to, it's hard, hard to, I mean, my answer would be, if I can't measure it, uh, you know, I can't, uh, can't help it, you know, I guess if I, if that's I, a good answer I, for what you do. You're right, yeah. right. I'm a scientist, so I can't help it. But, but, but that, that being said, there are many things that are uh, extremely, you know, that drive people's lives and livelihood that you cannot measure. You can't, there's no easy way, or you, you can measure, but maybe not accurate. Like what, what is your sort of spirituality metric? Right. What is your faith metric? What is your hope metric? You know, or something, you know, oh, we I, could make a measure, yeah. but and I, don't I, know. I think those all maybe get to this idea of resilience and yeah, in fact yeah. that the dean of mount sinai where i'm a professor actually that's his, his yeah, yeah. Uh, background is he studied sort of what is the molecular basis of uh, mental resilience right against uh, trauma against stress and and in fact uh, he, he holds the patent i think for ketamine which was just approved for, for depression, depression yeah. right yeah. so yeah. so i think that this concept of, of resilience actually has a molecular basis and we will be able to right. start to understand it in a more empirical way so Dave Asprey's been on this show and, and says he wants to live to 180. 
And he's got reasoning. You know, there are things he can control now, and then at a certain point, he thinks science will catch up and actually be able to make that happen. Um, what's your take on 180 or whatever whatever the magic age is? Like, where do you think science is going? Is living to 180 even possible? Would you even want to? It depends on the you know the well span, not just the lifespan, as a lot of people describe. Yes. And so, you know, a few people have made it past 120. So to think we can get to you know, 180, uh, it's not, um, it's not irrational. It's just improbable. Right. So I think it is, uh, but it is, um, it, it is physiologically possible. If you look, I just, you know, at other organisms that can live out that long, you know, turtles can live that long. There's some trees that have lived even potentially thousands of years. Mm -hmm. If you can control the way cells die and, and communicate with each other, it's not impossible. It's just that clearly the body's not by default uh, built that way. So it will require us to think about, uh, not just, you know, lifestyle changes or microbiome changes, you know, I would speculate that if you really want to live to 180, it may require, you know, some degree of even reprogramming things that you can't just do with diet. If you have to, you know, fundamentally rechange uh, how cells are built and designed, like regulating telomerase activity, for example, you want it to be upregulated so your telomere is still long, but not too much because that's what cancer cells do, right? So yeah. most of biology will have to be, you know, ramping back up some of the things that fall as we age, but not too much. And so some of it you can do with, you know, diet, lifestyle changes to, your, to what you do, but some of it you probably have to literally re-engineer the cells. But again, we're doing some of this for therapeutic purposes for people with Mendelian disorders, sickle cell disease, beta thalassemia. But the thing about doing it as a recreational effort, right. I think is still yeah. at least a couple yeah. of decades out. Yeah, we already know how to make human cells immortal. Just knock out P53, that's right, right. Uh, which is a cancer tumor suppressor, and they become immortal and you get cancer. But obviously that's not what we're, we're going for here. I, I think, though, it, it argues for at least um, trying to get some measurements while you're young because so if we are going to in the future when you're old we're going to have the ability to say you know use CRISPR to engineer your immune system back to where it was or your microbiome it'd be great to have data on what you looked like before when yeah. you're younger right? right so so getting a microbiome test uh, especially using a shotgun metagenome approach like we do it's sort of like getting a, uh, a virtual stool bank right so we know what your microbiome looked like when you when you were younger and you could argue the same you know with blood tests it's kind of like an insurance policy like i want to know i want to just be able to be able to go back you know essentially an insurance policy on to what you what you look like healthy and try to get back there so so what are like the three things that everyone should do some good catch-alls to live long and live healthy and then what are like the, the couple tests that everyone should do yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to say sleep is, is number one, <laughs> yeah, uh, without doubt. Um, What's the minimum? Well, it, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think it's between, I'm not a sleep expert, but, uh, you know, whatever, sleep six to eight or something like that. There's, there is uh, emerging um, uh, biology of this so-called uh, glymphatic system that sort of connects the brain to the, your immune system. And even might even be sort of a, a, a nightly drainage of bad things out of your brain. And that's only activated, a lot of things only activated during sleep. sleep. So unfortunately, the, the sleep is, it, it, well, yeah, I say that because the way Chris yeah. and I travel and, and don't sleep, it's, we prefer sleep to is a big sleep. one. Yeah, yeah. You know, I talk to lots of people who are asking me for all these biohacking. What can I take? What supplements can I take? What should I test for? And then they sleep four hours Magnesium a night. Magnesium <laughs> you know? and, it's like, and Yeah, yeah. it's like, uh, you know. To sleep, uh, you know, diet and exercise I'd put together is, is mm -hmm. and you, you actually do want to exercise, even if it's just walking, just walking around uh, is, is helpful. But if you can't exercise and also uh, improve diet. And then, I mean, the, the third category I'd say would be as much as you can on the quantification, uh, whether it's a, you know, microbiome testing that we're talking about, you know, genetic testing, to have a baseline. So even if you're healthy, having a baseline knows whenever you've been perturbed, 
what, what what did you look like before? And if you're already having any health issues, obviously if it's something very severe, you, you uh, do clinical testing. But even if it's just a little bit of dysbiosis, having some you know more information is very helpful. I think you know, sometimes it can feel like there's so much information. How can you possibly yes. address everything? Uh, but even you know if you get a little bit of information from a variety of places, having some snapshot of what your molecular portrait is today will inform what it looks like later if anything goes wrong. And so um, you know I'm being a bit self-serving and saying, we're, but we, we just literally launched this company with the goal that we've been doing it in our labs for, for at this point decades, but we want everyone to be able to, to access the latest and greatest. The same things we're doing on astronauts, anyone should be able to do for themselves. It's empowering. Yeah, man. And I, I would just add, I think also challenging, constantly challenging your physiology and healthy controlled ways. Now, it's probably dangerous for me to say that because I don't want you to be like the Princess Bride and the guy that, um, <laughs> you know, became immune to the poison uh, over time, you know, but, but um, you know, e- even, for example, variable walking versus consistent walking, believe it or not, has shown to, to have slightly better effects. We, it's always varying your patterns, varying your you know, slow, small challenges, whether it be a sauna, whether it be, you know, a little bit of cold like that, that's, you know, the, the science seems to be supporting this emerging little field, shocks, to your little system. shocks to your system to keep it adaptive to changes. Interesting. So where is the science going? Like, where do you think it's 2019? Like, what's this conversation going to be like in a year from now, three years from now? Like, what's interesting? Where do you think we're going to be? You know, it's it's the uh, it's the best time possible to be a scientist, and you could say that, and to be actually be even just someone concerned about your health or well being because. The amount of information, while it might seem dizzying, is never been greater than it is now, and the actionability on it has never been more immediate and palatable. So I think, you know, every everyone actually, this is interesting. Every scientist thinks that he or she is living in the best time to be a scientist or a human, but which has always been true because you always have more information than ever before. But at least in genetics and most of medicine today, the amount of information is exponentially more this year than it has in every year prior, and it's it's shooting up in almost a straight line on a chart of of data information. So. And even one or three years from now, we'll probably be having an, a wide-ranging discussion of many new discoveries, like even clonal hematopoiesis we didn't really know about. We had a first paper on it in 2012, but it was just a, a clue back then. And now we know a lot more how it gives you risk for cancer, cardiovascular risk. We can even potentially predict whether you're going to get cancer 15 years out before you wow. get it. Because you can see the mutations accruing mm-hmm. at a very perfect trajectory that we've seen you know, again and again and again. We keep sequencing deeper in people's bone marrow. You can see you know, the, the risk path. And so but once you see it, then you can track it. And you How can far see away it. is that? Uh, that's today. That paper just came wow. out earlier this year. For 15 years, you can predict in advance. I was actually yeah, meeting a guy who was on that study uh, later this afternoon in the office. So, uh, we, you know, this, and that, you know, that's very new. That was only a few years we were able to, to measure but, that. And I would add, uh, related to that exactly, is a growing scientific evidence based around wellness and prevention, right? So obviously, yeah. Yeah. wellness and prevention is an area full of a lot of woo yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not sure. a lot of science. And, and But there's a good reason for that. One is there hasn't been a lot of incentives to study wellness and, you know, and normal healthy people. And in fact, there's actually been resistance to it. Um, not only lack of funding, but also, you know, physicians who are trained that you shouldn't diagnose a healthy person or test a healthy person mm-hmm. if, if there's nothing wrong with them. But now uh, the tools, measurement tools, so genome sequencing is becoming, you know, commoditized, blood testing will hopefully be expanded, that it's going to be cheaper, faster to start understanding what health is and, and quantifying that before a disease and develop, you know, hard scientific approaches to wellness prevention. And just add on the end is, is in the U.S., Self-insured employers actually might be the place where most of that happens because uh, this is why J.P. Morgan Berkshire and Amazon joined together is that, you know, self-insured employers have the most alignment yeah. to focus on prevention. The costs are out of the control. Cost, yeah. Yeah. They spend exactly. a few hundred dollars a year in prevention. It's better than tens of thousands right. of dollars in a treatment. 
So I know it's hard to generalize, but I, I'm curious. I'm someone who takes a lot of supplements. Like, what supplements are probably good for most people? Um, you know, generally, uh, fiber d- d- doesn't hurt that much. And again, it does depend on the, the type of fiber. A lot of the studies on that have just been coming out. That uh, and I think very soon we'll be able to customize not just broad uh, fiber. And, you know, like saying, do I just go and uh, grab a bunch of celery? Is that going to do it, or do I take a specific supplement? Well, celery is like the miracle uh, drug, guys. Just, if you're just, not, just, you just know, take celery for everything. I mean, I might built my uh, my bed out of celery. So when I wake up in the night, I just grab a chunk off and I eat it. That's yeah. so I recommend a celery bed if you can get that. But um, the you know customization of the fiber, but fiber in general is good. Most of the vitamins are good. Actually, interesting. From our testing, we can actually see what vitamin levels not only do you have in the blood from the blood testing, but what is the biochemical capacity to make those vitamins? Actually, a lot of it is made by the microbes in your gut. So you think like, oh, I'm taking vitamins for me. No, 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 you're taking them for you and your microbes. And whatever your microbes don't make, actually, you can you can then literally supplement what their capacity is as lacking. And you can measure that in the blood. Uh, and you know, that's the other thing. Even if you take, for example, uh, psychiatric medication, on average, about a quarter of the microbes in your gut will be affected by the drug that's for your cells. And so there's really a consistent ecosystem. Every time you take a drug or a supplement or any molecule, it's not just for you. It's for all the trillions of trillions of you, the trillions of your microbes and your cells and everybody that's visiting. Yeah. Well, of course, I'll add the caveat. Always talk to your physician yeah, before right, starting yes, a new obviously. vitamin routine. <laughs> but uh, like to always throw that out there. Um, you know, if you're someone like me who has no unknown inflammatory condition, there are some, you know, every... Um, decision around supplements is risk versus you know, harm versus benefit, right? So there's a couple um, like uh, turmeric and there's a Boswellia serrata, which is a, a plant-based compound, which has some interesting uh, and, you know, and some decent uh, publications behind it. For what was that? Uh, Bo- Boswellia serrata, it's called. And wow. uh, it has some anti-inflammatory Boswellia, I haven't heard of that. properties. But, you know, with every supplement, you know, it's an, you have to be careful. It's an unregulated space. And sure. I, and, uh you know, so purity, efficacy, you don't know if, uh, you know, it's just grass clipping. So this is, you know, the, the challenge. in like the, the problem with space. CBD in America right yeah, now. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's exactly. West, yeah. Um, and then it also it could be knowing when you should take them and when you should not take them. Um, just taking them every day all the time doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, right. There was a study on, everybody's excited about like nicotinamide riboside and nicotinamide mononucleotide and, you know, that's a really... It's NR and NMR. NMR, yeah. yeah. So it looks like mononucleotide is potentially more interesting. But, you know, but it's super early. I mean, a lot of these studies are just done on animals, so it's really hard to say anything about humans. I'm not super excited about that space in general. But there was a paper showing that, um, I think it was for mononucleotide, that it it worked better when you pulsed it off and on rather than just consistently took it. So it's it's funny you say that because I go back to like, you know, I played basketball 20 years ago Mm -hmm. and and like lifting weights and Mm -hmm. exercise and trainers would always change up the routine. Mm -hmm. Cause like my favorite line from a trainer a long time ago is like, everything works until it doesn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you always have to, it goes back to what you said earlier, like shocking the body. Like if you just do the same thing every, every day, it just, it stopped. You're used to it. Your body adapts. You got to switch it up. Yeah. You got to. And you can feel that if you, small things, if you don't work out one muscle system in a while and then you switch weights to a different, you know, different machine in the gym, you'll feel it the next day. But if you haven't worked out that muscle group in a while, then, you know, you wouldn't know the difference. Right. So it's the small things that we can all viscerally feel. The same thing happens biochemically to some degree. Yeah. Like to me, that's like fascinating. And mm-hmm. also if I'm a, any, any, if I don't have time, I don't know. It's like I could do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can switch this up. That's right. very easy to do. 
And, you know, it does, and the body's really, uh, you know, can tolerate some things uh, well, you know, but for example, if you're too low on certain vitamins, you can live for a while, but if you have too long without vitamin C, you'll get scurvy, you know, so there's some right. things that you, you, can, you do want to maintain at least a minimum level of it. Right. Job, yeah. So I have to close with Joel. We were talking <laughs> before we uh, started recording about uh, Theranos, very mm-hmm. topical these days mm-hmm. with the, the best-selling book and mm-hmm. the HBO special. And you've got you, you had some interesting uh, talk yeah. about Theranos and, and and skepticism around all sure. this and what for, you saw. For a while, yeah. we thought Joel might be uh, taken out uh, yeah. by Theranos. <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah, so um, there were just guys for, outside your house. You didn't even know it. I I did think about checking under my car before I started it, um, but to, to try to be brief here, um, I published a paper. I think it was in 2016. I can't remember. On uh, in Journal of Clinical Investigation is one of the better sort of uh, clinical journals where we did sort of a she- secret shopper um, evaluation of Theranos versus LabCorp and Quest. To to date, this is the only peer-reviewed study that compared Theranos. Uh, it's just a lot less sexier than the, uh, the, the sort of whole drama around <laughs> what happened in the, the rest of the story, which is also super interesting. But the reason we did that study was we were not out to get Theranos. We just wanted, we were actually interested yeah. in a technology like that. And we said, but there's no paper. We have to evaluate See it. it. Works, yeah. Yeah. What people don't realize is that it, most, almost every company that has an emerging technology publishes on it. So, yeah. so Illumina, which makes the DNA sequencing uh, equipment, they will take their early stage beta hardware and give it to people like Chris yeah, yeah. to play around with and let people publish in a sort of objective way. So it's unusual. Even Apple and Google, by the way, publish papers on some of the health yeah. research they're doing So in peer-reviewed journals. So it's really unusual when a company doesn't have any publications like that. So so we, we sent 60 people to... Um, on a secret shopper sort of thing in Arizona uh, to, yeah. to Theranos and Walgreens and Walgreens. Yeah. Then they got they right before they went in, they got LabCorp, then they got uh, Theranos yeah. and they yeah. got uh, Quest. And long story short, we were shown to have some biases in, or they were shown to have some biases in um, uh, cholesterol and uh, other potentially important things actually weren't as bad as you, people might think, but you know, it, it made them look bad because it looked like they're they're trying to cover it up these deficiencies. And one thing, and we could potentially get into the whole drama around that paper and what you know they did to us after that. But uh, um, one thing that uh, I want to make clear is that um, um, La- Theranos was trying to reinvent the back end lab. Right. This is the big. This is what everybody should have been worried about. You know, it's not because you get focused on the finger pricks and the nanotainers. That actually wasn't at all a Theranos innovation. That was actually off-the-shelf technology, these sort of uh, nanotainers and these finger pricks. What they were trying to do is they said they had this machine. Magic machine. Magic machine. And and if anyone who's in clinical testing knows it's just a nightmare to get a new testing machine approved. You know, there's all kinds of regulatory red tape. So you should be skeptical of anyone. So there are new blood testing technologies that improve the front end collection. And for disclosure, we have one. But there are lots of other blood testing companies that unfortunately have been punished by this Theranos backlash, but as long as they're not changing the back-end lab. Where they do the molecular biology. That was the big flag. For anyone who was in the know, that was the flag. So we've innovated a lot on the collection side, so you can do, because we want to make it easy, you want to make it accessible Mm -hmm. for people that can't get around that well. You want to, we want, what we've, we're launching out shortly is a way you can just ship it in the mail and the blood gets collected and dried out and you can ship it back in the mail and it's stabilized. But then what we use to characterize that blood is everything that's standard laboratory equipment that we've used in our lab for for years that, you know, that LabCorp and Quest uses. So 
We're not, you know, the, the, the danger with Theranos is they tried to make a magical new technology that didn't exist. <laughs> We're just changing how we do the collection, which already is, is patented and is in 510K, uh, you know, it's, it's already, you know, being approved. So, or hopefully will be approved. So that that, that is, uh, you know, and you go through the normal regulatory processes, mm-hmm. again, which they did not do. So that on, on many levels, you know, again, they had no papers. We have uh, over 300 papers that we've published. You know, they, they tried to reinvent something. We're just taking, uh, moving how we collect it and put, taking it through standard protocols with standards we've developed. So it, it's, um, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a simple case where people should have just been looking closer. And so we, you know, we want, we want, to, you know, want everyone to look at what we're doing. We want to be as data-driven as possible. We want to be accessible and democratized as possible, which is you know, how it should be. I love it. Amen to that. Thanks so much, guys. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Pleasure. Thanks.